coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories and our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We still have storytellers share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And these episodes are a little different uh, because we are recording during the COVID-19 pandemic, which means we are physically distancing. So we are not in our studio. So our sound and audio quality might be a little bit different than what you're used to. You might hear some sirens and birds, uh, but we are just doing the best we can with what we have. And I am really, really excited to have a conversation with our guest today. Um, I met our guest a few years ago um, through a project that me and my friend Jeff created called Craft Your Truth. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but I'm so excited to introduce Kate Barnhart, she, her, um, who is a longtime AIDS activist and member of ACT UP New York, who has been arrested multiple times for acts of civil disobedience, protesting issues related to AIDS, healthcare, police brutality, immigration, and part of the anti-Trump resistance. She has worked with at-risk youth since 1994, including six years working with young felons at Cases, an alternative to incarceration program. In 2001, she has worked with homeless LGBT, uh, she has worked with uh, homeless LGBT youth. She spent five years serving as director of Sylvia's Place, an emergency shelter for LGBT homeless youth and is currently the Executive Director of New Alternatives for LGBT Homeless Youth, an organization she helped found in October of 2008. In her free time, Ms. Barnhart rescues and rehabilitates stray cats. Kate, welcome. Hello. How, how are you doing? It's such a loaded, hard, weird question, but I, I wanna know, how are you doing? I, well, aside from the fact that I broke my foot, oh, I no. am. Yeah, you know, I dropped a cast iron chair on my foot, which was just not a good thing. Oh my gosh. But, um, and so it sort of stopped me from going to some marches, but. Yeah. How is yeah. it, how long ago was that? It's been about two and a half weeks. Is it feeling any better? How much, are you wearing a cast? Like... I have a, you know, one of those boot things. Yeah. It's really annoying and heavy and hot. Yes. Um, and the cats are kind of afraid of it because I don't usually use shoes in the house. And they're mm. like, what is this thing? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have an MRI on Monday, actually. Wow. So yeah. had, had you been going into the office before and now you can't or was everything virtual always? Still? It's mostly virtual. I, I've, I've just started going in just one day a week. And the boot is a challenge because, you know, we have a lot of stairs. Mm -hmm. Um but we're not really, it's weird. We're not really seeing clients in person um, yet. Like people can come pick up meals to go, but our counseling and our case management are all either on the phone or in various uh, internet forms. 
clients like Messenger a lot. So yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a shift. Um, I absolutely want to circle back to more about new alternatives in a, in a minute, but um, I do want to know about the object that you brought that reminds you of Pride. Sure. Well, what I brought is one of my old, uh, this is an old ACT UP New York pin. Um, it says ACT UP Fight Back and the AIDS, which is a chant we chant. Um, and it reminds me of Pride because for me, you know, I don't really necessarily find pride in like, you know, being queer and busting out in glitter and partying. I find yeah. it in I find it in the organizing of our community and the activism and our our resistance to certain things. So um so for me that's why the act up pin. And of course, you know, we we just lost Larry Kramer a few months ago. Mm-hmm. So I think um that's, you know, on everybody's mind, even people don't consider themselves members anymore. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. Um, I, I also brought a pin. Um, ah, I almost dropped it. It's very small. It's just like a little uh, oh, rainbow yeah. pin that I got at the Fluid Project. Um, oh, okay. And the Fluid Project, for those of you who don't know, I don't think it's a, there's an in-person store anymore, but... Um, oh, really? Yeah, I think it closed even before or maybe right after the, the pandemic hit. Oh, that's but... a shame. I actually did a panel at that store. Oh, that's awesome. We actually did some yeah. thank you for coming out shows there. Yeah. Um, so it was like the first gender-free clothing store, I think, in the country or maybe the world. I might be making that up, but I know it was the first somewhere. Um, and I loved that about about the store. And the all of the um, employees were really intentional about not using gendered language and greeting guests and customers, which does might not seem like a big deal to people, but when you're constantly misgendered, it's a huge deal to walk into a store and not have that happen to you. Um, they also, I don't know if you knew this, Kate, but they had a, like a boardroom in the basement that, yeah. You could rent, oh yeah, so you could rent that out for free and just have your meetings there, which was and they yeah. had restrooms, like public restrooms. It just was like, uh, and they had a little coffee thing too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just, I um, they also when the um gender neutral Barbie came out, they had like a launch party. It just was like it's a like yeah a community center, but with clo- like really expensive clothes you could buy. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. They had that. Um, you know, the panel I spoke on was about uh sexual assault of the lgbt community mm. and it was me and dj zeke and a few other people it was a you know it was an interesting panel that yeah that sounds like it would be interesting um so i am i was sad to learn that it the physical space closed i think they still exist online but i just the the rainbow button uh or pin or whatever also have the black and brown stripes um, and I appreciated that because I got this button a long time ago um, and was impressed that they, which it shouldn't be impressive, but it, at that time, yeah, rarely did rainbow flags have the black and brown stripes. So I appreciated their forward thinking and lots of, or quote unquote, forward thinking. <laughs> what should already be, but as it is, it's forward thinking for now. Um, so we all have multiple coming out stories. So I would love to hear one of yours. Well, I was one of the youngest people in ACT UP in 1990, right? So I did a lot of, um, I did a lot of public speaking about the, um, the youth aspects 
of the AIDS epidemic, both prevention and and um, HIV positive youth. And so um, I did this interview with, oh boy, just forgot who they are. You know, one of those big national magazines, like, I forget what they, totally forgot. But anyway, they, um, but I, it was a big national magazine. So, and my grandparents lived in Kansas, which is not um, your most, and it included a photo. Mm. And um, Kansas is not your most LGBT friendly place, even now. Mm -hmm. um, they're better than, than they used to be in some regards, but cloud sorry got a dumpster diving cat um so you know i didn't know what you know what my grandparents might make of this article and um and so and we never discussed it things like that were not discussed you know nothing important was ever discussed it was always all about what you were going to have for lunch you know, like I've never met people who ate one meal and started talking about the next one immediately. <laughs> um, but, you know, there was not a lot to talk about. So, And um, my mother and I had always gone to visit them literally in disguise. Like my mother would buy herself and me different clothes to wear to visit them. I'll ask you more about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Anyway. And I mean, the last time I took my mother out to see them, she was pretty sick with breast cancer by then. She was so in disguise that I lost her in the airport. Didn't wow. recognize her. But anyway, we, um, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So we get out there the next visit. And to my great surprise, Grandpa had taken the photo, which, I mean, I was in an act up, a Keith Haring shirt, actually. Mm. had taken it and there was an act up sign in the background it was not just you know like me in the photo mm -hmm. he had framed it and it was in his house wow yeah i was totally surprised by that so that was um that was a definitely a degree of coming out and acceptance in a way and later on when my mother died and we were um we did i had brought her ashes to kansas for the ceremony but then the family cemetery is in Wisconsin. So we had a long drive and I had Juliana with me and um, we stopped in a motel overnight and my grandpa turns to us and says, I got you to a room with two beds. Is that okay? And the implication of that just like blew me away. Like I never thought I'd hear my grandpa like acknowledge anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when we got to the cemetery, this crazy man had had all the tombstones for the whole family already engraved. Mm. So I'm looking at my own tombstone that only needs my date of death, right? Whoa. And my uncle and like all these people are still alive, right? Yeah. He had just done them all at once so they would match because that's how he was. Mm -hmm. And um, he turns to Juliana and he says a little apologetically, we have some space over here if you don't mind being cremated. Wow. And that was his kind of welcome to the family, which was super strange. <laughs> but still, you know, I mean, I appreciated the meaning, even if it was a very odd way of communicating it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's, um, I've not heard a story like that before. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> um, 
So I, I want to dig in a little bit, but before I do, I would love to know more about the disguise and why that, why you and your mom wore disguises when you would go to visit. Well, you know, my mom had run away from Kansas. You know, she, she um, got, she turned 18 and she was accepted to Barnard. And my grandpa said no, mm. because he was a professor at the university there in Kansas. And he, he thought she should go to his school where he would have control. And it, of course, it was cheap and all that. Mm -hmm. So she just was like, hell no. And she took off for New York and went to Barnard. And, um, and then of course, you know, all the protesting and everything happened and she wound up her senior year, they took over Columbia. This is the, you know, fight against the Vietnam war and all that. Um, so she, uh, she didn't graduate. You know, because my grandpa did not support her at all when she got to Columbia. After mm. once she did that, she was cut off, you know. Yeah. So, and she remained cut off, like, her whole life, I don't think. On the rare occasions he gave her anything, he put it in a trust, but he didn't give it to her directly. So, um, so she was very, like, bohemian, you know, here in New York. She covered the, fa you know, she became a journalist and she was covered the fashion scene. So, you know, she was pretty edgy and ahead of a lot of fashion. And so, um, you know, these are not things you would wear in Kansas, right? Like this. Mm -hmm. And so she, you know, to go back to Kansas, she would buy us things that were Kansas acceptable, you know. Mm, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah and I remember one time I had gotten old enough to resist this to some degree and so at the time I was really into these like wraparound Indian skirts but they were like you know ankle length and uh, I remember getting there and my mom and my grandma were just bound and determined to shorten these skirts of mine mm. because it was to them not um not appropriate or whatever so and it became a whole uproar because I was not going to have it. And um, so my grandpa went to the library and he researched women's fashion and he came back with some like, you know, evidence that he had photocopied that women could wear long skirts in this day and age or whatever. Wow. So that was my grandpa's way of assisting in the situation. And then my uncle rolled up my skirts and hid them in his, what was it, a... Oh, you know, it's the thing they play tabs with. Uh, bugle? Oh, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Either. It was some, uh, some kind well, maybe of... Maybe a bugle. Um, I think that sounds yeah. right. That feels right. Yeah, anyway. yeah. It was some kind of uh, uh, brass instrument. Mm. Anyway, so he rolled up my skirts and hid them in his case, in his instrument case, so that they were not, could not be uh, snatched up by the other side and shortened. <laughs> so yeah it was you know quite the there was definitely a huge rift between the um you know the sides and my um my mother also you know she was she had me without being married mm -hmm. and this was so unacceptable in Kansas and this is of course I was born in 1975 so this is really not and that um that my 
grandparents told their whole town I was adopted. Oh, wow. And uh, as it happens, I'm the only redhead in the family, so people really believed it. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, but then, like, after they were all dead, when my grandfather died, he was the last one, um, the the bank guy who was in charge of, you know, his estate that he'd left behind said to my lawyer, who was actually my, you know, high school, my first boyfriend, whatever, <laughs> he was uh, acting as my lawyer. And so this bank guy says to, says to Mike, well, you know, isn't it great that, that he left this stuff to, to his granddaughter, even though she was adopted? Oi. So Mike thinks that he's found out something that I need to know, right? So mm -hmm. he does the whole sit down and, you know, serious conversation thing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, um, and when he told me, I just started to laugh. And I was like, no, you don't understand, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just, there was a lot of coming out in our family in a way, because like, even, you know, when my mother got breast cancer, and she finally like admitted it to them, then it turned out that my grandmother had had breast cancer for years. Mm. Who knew, you know, because they just didn't, there was just, there were a lot of secrets and then moments like that where they, people had to come out about them and it all started to like unravel. Wow. What do you think it, I don't think this is unique to your family per se, but like, what do you think it is that drives families to keep secrets and to keep these like important nuggets of information from each other? Well, I think some of it is just like acculturation, like a lot of, you know, sort of the culture my grandparents were living in in Kansas, that culture of, you know, you don't complain, you don't say anything, you know, that has a particularly strong meaning, <laughs> you know, like you just stiff upper lip and, you know, kind of that culture, I think, is what, I mean, is what was doing it in their case. But then I think also, you know, family relationships are often very fraught, you know, mm -hmm. people have developed all kinds of conflicts and issues with each other along the way. And that just feeds into it. Yeah. Hmm. Something that, that struck me as you were sharing are these um, really subtle slash not so subtle ways of allyship that are, not like your quote unquote typical right. <laughs> things that you think about when you think about allies. Yes. And like the framing of the, the article and the picture um, that's huge. And like just the, then the, the offerings that your grandpa made. Um, yeah. And I love the, I love the image of your uncle, like hiding your skirts in his, let's say bugle, bugle case. That's really, I don't know. It's really sticking out to me. Um, cause even if it isn't like as explicit as like, we accept you and we love like in that way, yeah. it's like, like a really sweet, do you, in the, in those moments as they were happening, did you realize that that's what was happening or was it more like a hindsight is 2020? Like, Oh, that's allyship. I did realize, I mean, and I was surprised by it. I mean, my uncle is a very, very quiet man, rarely says anything more than, yep and uh-huh mm -hmm. so you know I didn't really know where he stood on anything you know 
so it was sort of um so I was surprised and um and my grandpa was very stern and very I mean, you know, this is a man who when we went to pack up his house after he died, we opened the closet and there were all these boxes lined up with the label maker they were labeled by you know, by machine, not even by hand and it said gray socks, brown socks, Whoa. black so-, you know, I mean this man was meticulous and like yeah. when I was in college he had some money uh, set aside and he doled it out semester by semester and I had to submit, it was like a grant proposal. I had to submit like Hampshire doesn't have grades, but I had to submit my evaluations from the previous semester and explain what I was going to be taking and why and all this stuff. And then basically had to approve and dole out the money, you know, and it was just very clear that if, you know, if I had wanted to do something that he didn't approve of or thought was a waste, like, you know, my mother, the artist, the mm-hmm. writer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he probably wouldn't have told out the money. I would have been cut off too. But fortunately, I was pre-med, so I, he was cool with that, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um do you still have the Keith Haring shirt in the picture? I love Keith Haring and I just, that would be like such a cool thing to have if you still have it. I would have no idea where it would be. Yeah. Because um, a lot of stuff from my grandpa's house wound up in the basement of my dad's house in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So we just didn't have anywhere to put it. So yeah, we packed up down there. Random weird question, but I had to ask it. Um, <laughs> uh, so if I remember which, I feel like it was in U.S. News and World Reports. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll do some sleuthing. Um, so I would love to kind of, you brought it up. Um, I mean, because of most of what we're talking about of like being part of ACT UP. And I actually wonder if we could just take a step back and if you can sh- like say what ACT UP is, because we might have some listeners that might not mm-hmm. know or be familiar That's with true. it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's funny, you know, ACT UP has become a Jeopardy question. Mm. They um they have like the, uh, you know, the sort of slogan of ACT UP and then there's like a, a, a blank. Is that Jeopardy? I don't know. I think so. Anyway. Uh, sure. Or we'll um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. One of those game shows. But I just, it's funny because ACT UP's become such a different thing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, become a different I don't know. It's weird to have been something that some people consider part of history, you know? Yeah. So ACT UP is the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. And it was um, a group of folks of a wide range of backgrounds who were doing activism to fight AIDS. And it was started in 1987. And, you know, there were, it was a huge organization that, you know, in the big, at the you know the peak and it had chapters all over the country and internationally but act of new york was the original chapter and um we had a lot of committees working on all kinds of things so you had you know the treatment and data people who are you know widely credited with actually you know sort of facilitating the process of getting the drugs that we have now tested and approved um you know, like they literally forced through the redesign of some of the clinical trial sort of procedures in order to make it faster and things like that. 
Um, but also we've done all kinds of things, you know, I mean, it's all, ACT UP was all about civil disobedience and protest, but also we had people behind the scenes who would be meeting with the doctors and the pharmaceutical. You know, it's so funny to see Fauci all over TV now because we used to fight with him during the AIDS epidemic and sometimes he was our, you know, target. Oh, wow. Well, because we had to, you know, he was part of the establishment that we were trying to push to shake things up, to get things moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's so, like you said, like it's like a weird feeling to be part of history. And I just, I find it to be such an honor to get to talk to you because you, you know, I've been, I, I knew this about you, but I also researched you a lot last night of like, just like the depth of your activism and the depth of, um, or, you know, like the, the lengths you'll go to, you know, to fight for what's right. And, um, I have done my share of harebrained and crazy things in terms of activism. (laughs) It's like, it's, it's really just inspiring and, um, incredible. I read an article, um, about, something that happened in 2010 of a peaceful sit-in at Aetna. You were fighting the healthcare company um, for coverage, I think for a brain tumor. Is that accurate? Oh, this was my friend, Mark Milano, who's an ACT UP member and a long-term AIDS survivor. Mm -hmm. And he um, had been diagnosed with anal cancer in addition to AIDS. And the only way he was going to survive was this experimental treatment. And Aetna refused so what we did was we all plunked ourselves down in their lobby and um, they approved it and he's still alive. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Approved it almost like the next day or a couple of days later. Wow. So wow. ACT UP had a lot of power, you know, drug companies still are scared of ACT UP. So, you know, um, but also the fact that we were able to draw media attention to a lot of things, you know, that, are normally hidden, you know? I mean, the AIDS crisis, AIDS was very stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that we were able to bring a lot of aspects of the AIDS crisis to the media and sort of into the public awareness, I think made a big difference. Mm -hmm. Plus we just, you know, I mean, ACT UP also did a lot of, you know, we did political funerals. We would take the bodies of people who died of AIDS sometimes we threw them onto the White House lawn one, once, twice, um, which is a really intense thing to be handling. And at first we thought, you know, this was during the AIDS quilt was in D.C. So there was a bazillion people who cared about AIDS going to D.C. to see that. Mm-hmm. And we um, organized this march to the White House and we had our people's ashes with us that we were planning to throw. But what we didn't know was that like word had gotten out and there were people who had just come to the march with ashes. Wow. So they randomly started passing ashes of people we didn't know up from the back of the march. Because if we'd known they were there, of course, we would have had them at the front, you know. But we didn't know, so they were just passing them. Wow. So you've got the ashes of people, you don't even know who they are in your hands, you know. Wow. And then when it came time to throw them, it was a little bit windy, and uh, they were blowing into... Like ashes get in your eyes. They're gritty. They get into your mouth and there's this like grittiness. Mm. The police horses were getting them in their eyes, the press, the cops, everybody. But the one, 
And then, you know, they got on the White House lawn, and then all of a sudden there was this downpour, like, out of nowhere. And it soaked them in so that there was no way they could wash, you know, they could have brushed them away if they had been dry, Mm -hmm. but it just soaked them in. Wow. What a powerful image and a powerful moment that is. I was a senior in high school at the time. Oh my gosh. I, I want to rewind even more. Like how did you get into activism? Like how did you realize that that was something that was important to you? And also, yeah, I'll just tell, I just want to know. I mean, (laughs) I blame Pete Seeger. Uh, the folk singer. Um, Pete's journey and mine intersected a lot for some reason. And um, my my parents were pretty lefty, you know, and so I went for elementary school, I went to the Little Red Schoolhouse, which is, you know, was a communist party school. And so it was, you know, so we had a lot of, you know, Pete Seeger coming and singing with us kind of thing. And, you know, I remember going to marches with you know, my, my mother or my friend's parents, you know, even as a kid, and we'd be making origami cranes with Pete, you know. And then in, I guess, junior high, I got recruited to um, write for Pete Seeger's organization as the Clearwater. I mean, he's gone now, but Clearwater is still there. And um, so they asked me to write for the River Rag, their newsletter. At that time, newsletters were on paper, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what so, that means. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, um, and at one point, I was assigned to interview Jim Florio, who was the governor of New Jersey, about incinerators. Now, I was maybe in seventh grade. Wow. So it was like, well, I can't do this interview in person. He's going to see I'm a kid. So mm-hmm. I had to do it on the phone. And, um, and I wrote the article. And I still think I have the letter that Pete wrote me after that article. Oh, Wow. With his, like, banjo signature, you know, yeah. That's so um, cool. Yeah, so, you know, we, and, you know, we just kept intersecting in different ways. And, you know, he was really an inspiration to me, but also all kinds of other people along the way. Holly Near, of course, you know, lots of people. And also, I think, you know, as I got, I was also the editor of my junior high school paper, right? So I would just skip class and, like, sit there in a little closet with a, a very, you know, old type of computer that was humongous, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and at one point, I had written an article about the situation in El Salvador, and chunks of the article kept disappearing. And at a certain point, I realized that our school paper was being censored. Wow. Yeah. So my best friend and I, organized an underground paper in our junior high called the Freethinker. And of course, the administration was not pleased. But, you know, my mother was supportive. She would type stuff up for us. And um, Emma's parents were, you know, her dad was a union organizer, so it was no big problem for them, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> But we funded that with, like, I remember we would collect change and we would go to the print shop with those like tremendous boxes of change and be like here you go <laughs> That's so like, then, wow yeah sorry yeah. i interrupted you it's all right so that was you know that was one of my early organizing projects and we kept that going for a couple of years 
and then um, when I got to high school, I got there in 89, just in time for the uh, first war, the first Iraq war. Mm-hmm. So we organized a coalition of students from schools all over the city, high school students, to oppose the war. And we were doing, you know, marches and, and fighting against the recruitment ROTC in the high schools, you know, JROTC, mm-hmm. um, because that was totally targeting low-income kids, you know. Yeah. So we were, um, you know, we did all that. And then at the end of the war, it was like, we felt like the coalition was really, really powerful. And so we decided to work on other things. So we all got trained to do clinic defense um, for abortion clinics and different things. But one of the things we did was this action with ACT UP, where ACT UP at the time had a youth committee, but it was mostly actually teachers in mm-hmm. ACT UP who were working on AIDS education in the schools. And so we hooked up with them, and we pretended to be their students, and they booked a tour of Brooklyn Borough Hall. And at the time, the Brooklyn Borough president had not taken a position on AIDS education. So we wanted to pressure him. So we went on this tour of Brooklyn Borough Hall. We happened to take a wrong turn right into his office. <laughs> and uh, we dropped a huge banner out the windows that were in the front of the building that said, his name was Howard Golden, and the banner said, Golden is silent. Mm. And then we stuffed his files with condoms that they're probably still finding, and flyers, and <laughs> just made a ruckus and whatnot, and we got arrested. And that was my first arrest. I was 15. Wow. Yeah. And my and mother was really mad. Yeah, I bet my mom would have not liked me getting arrested. Um, how many times? My have mother you been- was mad because I quit school. I mean, like I oh. skipped school to go to do this action. That I was gotcha. what her problem. Um, how many times have you been arrested? Yeah. I really, really lost track. Oh wow! Like somewhere maybe between thirty and forty. Because I racked up probably about 12 just since Trump was elected. Wow. It, mostly in D.C. Yeah. But also I've done a few anti-ICE things here in the city more recently. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned earlier that you were pre-med. So at what, like, how, how far did you go with that? And then at what point did you decide to change tracks? Unless you did, well, I don't realize you're a doctor. When I, yeah, I was in Hampshire from uh, 93 to 96. And uh, I mean, I did my bachelor's in three years. So um, I was super busy because I was also doing all this organizing and stuff. Yeah. But um, 93 and 94 were really bad years in ACT UP. Like we lost a lot of our people. Um, you know, I kept coming back. What's happening, Honor? <laughs> I kept coming back to New York for, um, you know, for funerals and for, you know, political funerals and stuff. So we, um, you know, it was just really hard. You, the ACT UP meetings every week had a section just for memorializing the people we'd lost the week, in the week between the general meetings. Mm. That's how it was going, you know. Yeah. And you never knew if you saw someone at the meeting that that might be the last time you saw them, you know. Yeah. So those were the years when Paul Monette died and Robert Rygor and just everybody. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a while. <sighs> so, you know, and we needed AIDS doctors. And so that was why I did the pre-med thing. Mm-hmm. We needed 
we just didn't have enough people. I mean, especially since many of the people who were treating AIDS were gay men who wound up getting AIDS and dying. Mm -hmm. So it's like really an issue. So anyway, that's why. But then in 1996, I had a couple friends who were really close to death in 1996. um, And I would be sending them stuff from from school and trying to cheer them up and everything. Mm -hmm. But it was really bad. Um, And then the new meds were came about in 1996 Mm -hmm. and both of them are still alive wow um you know those meds really pulled people back but um you know so at the end of 96 when I graduated um my mother had breast cancer by then and I needed to come home and take care of her and stuff Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, you know, I, I'll postpone medical school and do this, you know, instead and get back to medical school and, you know, when I can. Yeah. So I, you know, while I was here in New York, I had been working during the summer with teen felons at a program called Cases. And um, I was training them to be HIV AIDS peer educators. And then they would go out and teach other kids various places in the justice system and GD programs and rehabs and stuff. Um, and we paid them to do it. Mm-hmm. So, because the thought was, well, you know, a lot of the kids were getting arrested for doing things for money, like selling drugs and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So why not, you know, give them a way to make money, you know, without, in a positive way. Yeah. So, you know, we, I, you know, I created this program and we ran it for the summers. And then when I graduated and I was back in New York, they were like, well, you know, you want to come full time. So that's how I got the job at Cases. And, you know, I was there for a number of years, as it turned out. <laughs> I never mm. got back to medical school because mm. um, it was a, by the time my mother died, a few years, she died in 99, I was um, already pretty, like, involved at Cases, and I couldn't pull myself away at that point. We had kept expanding the program. You know, we added Spanish language workshops. We added several different topics like we really kept expanding so I was you know in deep at that point yeah and uh, I mean eventually I went back to school for uh, clinical psychology because I realized through the work at cases that healing is not just about the body mm-hmm. you know and by that point you know AIDS was much more under control and there was less of a critical need for for AIDS docs, so I didn't feel like I, I felt like I could not, you know, I didn't have to do that. Yeah. Wow. So, so you were at Cases, and then you went, and then I think you then went to Sylvia's place? Is that the right trajectory? Yeah, yeah. When I, no, actually. Oh, okay. Well, I left Cases, um, it started getting to me because being part of the justice system, the kids were sentenced to us by the courts mm. and you, if they fucked up, the courts would send them back to jail. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you could have a kid who was making progress in all these ways and then screwed up once. And if you had a judge who was uptight, which a lot of them are, they were sent back and it was kind of, it was just heartbreaking. And, um, after a while it was getting to me. So yeah, I, 
left without a plan, actually. I just one day said to my deputy director, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was about when my grandfather died. So no, not yet. He hadn't yet. So I was like, so then I was at large, didn't really have a plan. Mm-hmm. And um, the neutral zone hired me. They were a drop-in center for LGBT youth, one of the first. They had started out actually with this interesting idea that let's get queer youth out of the actual bars on Christopher Street by opening a juice bar for youth on Christopher Street. Mm. Um, And they eventually got sort of like harassed off Christopher Street because you know, people have, there's been a long history of people complaining about the youth, especially the homeless youth in that area. So anyway, they, they had a couple drop-in centers. I worked at the one on 16th and we got, the rents went up and we moved to 33rd right after 9-11 because mm-hmm. nobody wanted to rent any space near the Empire State Building oh. at that time. And we were like, fuck it. It was an interesting building though, because there was like a dungeon in the same building. Oh, wow. Like a, yeah. an actual real dungeon? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes their clients would be drunk or whatever, get off on our floor by accident. Oh, wow. So, you know, we ran that program for a while. And then, you know, what I learned while I was there was how many youth at the end of the evening would still be there with me mm-hmm. because they had nowhere to go when we closed. And I would stay late, so late sometimes that I'd open my office door and find out staff had not realized I was in there and turned off all the lights um, mm. and uh, just try to figure out something. But at that point, there were no LGBT specific youth shelters. There was only Covenant House and a lot of youth wouldn't go there. Um, and so it came down to sometimes I remember calling friends from ACT UP who I trusted to be appropriate and saying, can this person just like crash with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, because it was that or they were out sleeping on the piers. Yeah. Or they were picking up tricks and going home with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was really, you know, those were, you know, there were just not a lot of options and those were rough times, but we did manage to get stuff, get stuff done. But then I got fired. <laughs> and oh. uh, you wouldn't think, right? I, d- I don't think, no. <laughs> I had, we had a really odd uh, executive director. Um, he was a cis, white, straight man. And I don't know why he was running this LGBT program. And uh, he was really, he was really kind of crazy. Like you could, my office was next to his and I could hear him like shouting obscenities at people in there. At one point we caught like a mouse in the live trap and he took it home as a present for his girlfriend. Like really, really? Yeah. Weirdo. Weirdo. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. (laughs) So I don't know why exactly. Um, he just decided to fire me. I know he was always complaining that my office was messy. I don't know what the hell, but anyway, he he did, and um, so you know, I walked, and that was right when my grandfather died. So I was like, "Thank goodness my grandfather died, so he doesn't have to know I got fired." Mm. So I went to Kansas because I had to pick up, pack up this house you know my grandfather's small retirement house was still way bigger than anything in New York you know Mm -hmm. so um I spent a few months and uh just like kind of lost in Kansas and um 
And then Reverend Michael from Metropolitan Community Church, where they had just started Sylvia's Place, called me up. I was like, Kate, you know, get back here. We need, we need you to come be the director of Sylvia's Plays. So uh, we got in the, the other Kate and I got in the car, in my grandpa's car, right? The giant Chipre, uh, Caprice Classic and uh, wow. drove it back to New York City. Um, and that's how I got the job at Sylvia's Place. And at that time, I was very, very rudimentary. And so a lot of what I had to do was grow the program, you know, and like get funding and add things and, you know, get it to a full programness. Wow. And then it's, and then, so then you took all of the skills that you'd learned at Sylvia's Place and Beyond and started new alternatives. Yeah. Um, can you share with us what New Alternatives is? I, I read that you, for the first year, you didn't even take a salary. Um, I didn't have any money. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, new, so I, you know, at, at Sylvia's Place, I noticed that there, were, that there were certain things that the young people needed. And I, I was somewhat limited at Sylvia's because they are part of the church where they are. It's an LGBT church, but it means that the pastor can impose, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So what happened was um, Reverend Pat, we had a couple trans youth who were screwing around in the Sunday service. And the kids would go to Sunday service because it meant they could stay indoors longer. Mm-hmm. And it also meant there were cookies at the end and things like that. Not, mm-hmm. you know. So they were screwing around and Reverend Pat got so mad that she said that we could not have drop in on Sundays. So that was like a collective punishment. And I really had a problem with that because we had not only kids who lived there, but kids would come, other kids would come on, you know, in the early evening for dinner and to dance and hang out, you know, so that was really, really a bad thing. And so we started out um, one of, our volunteers who was involved at another church said, Hey, you know, they'd be okay if you want to have Sunday dinner over at the other church. Mm. So um, we started doing that and we would have um, one of our volunteers at Sylvia's place who the kids knew would stand in front of the building and catch all the stragglers who showed up thinking there was drop in at Sylvia's and he would walk them over to the other church. And so we had this subversive dinner going on and that's how the Sunday dinners that are still a focal point of new alternatives got started. Wow. And Sylvia still does not have drop in on Sundays. Wow. 12 years later. So, but I had noticed that there were other things that, that the young people needed. Like, for instance, I felt really like they needed a consistent long-term approach to case management. Because mm-hmm. if your case management is tied to your shelter program and the shelter programs are time limited, mm-hmm. what happens is that, you keep moving to other shelters and you keep starting over. And especially for people who have a lot of trauma, that's just not a good thing. Like you're never going to be able to work on the deeper issues if you can't build a long-term trusting relationship. And the other part of it is that um, over the years, the things that the young people need to do in case management are taking longer and longer. You know, like when I first started doing mental health housing applications at, at the neutral zone, you know, you could get someone in in a couple of months. And now it's like a year, 
maybe more, because the demand has increased and the number of beds really hasn't. Um, and Social Security, getting someone disability is a much longer process than it was. So all these things, you don't want to start something like that with a young person and then be like, oh, sorry, your time is up. And then they usually wind up not following through and all that work is wasted. And then they wind up having to start over. And I just, I can't stand that. Yeah. 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 So you notice a need and you addressed it. Yeah. I'm the type of person who has a habit of jumping into gaps. I um I pulled a quote from an article that really stuck out to me. Um, actually two quotes. One is I joined ACT UP in 1990. So the activist mindset is sort of like, if there's a problem, don't wait. We all have the responsibility to take action to correct things and improve things, which is just like the highlighter of what you just said of like seeing a gap and addressing it. And then the second one is as activists, we didn't have a lot of money to work with or whatever, uh, but we did have, what we did have was determination in people and you can really use those things to get stuff done. And um, which, which is proven because you said the first year you didn't have any money and you still built this organization that still exists today. Um, and at the beginning you had mentioned wanting to kind of dive deeper into um, activism and service work and just want to like talk to you about what that means to you and who should be, um, you know, driving these movements right now um, when it comes to finding equity for folks. Well, I think it's really, you know, it's always been important to me that people who are directly impacted by an issue have the voice, the, the say, you know, because those are the people who actually know what should happen. Like recently we decided to do, to create a little outreach program because we're serving meals every day now at new alternatives because of, we started it during COVID. So we wanted to get the word out about that. And so, you know, I could have sat down and designed an outreach program. I'm certainly, you know, had the experience, but I instead I, you know, took the two, two of my staff who I was planning to have do the outreach. And I just said to them, so, you know, like how, how do you think this should, you know, and just let them decide like where, when, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, and they, you know, and then, you know, you just have to be open to what people are, are saying, you know, like they came back to me and they said, you know, that was okay, but we really think we need t-shirts that say outreach. I was like, okay, you know, if that's what you need, then we'll get it for you. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, you can't be reluctant to also, you know, it's one thing to listen to people and you can have focus groups out the ass, but if you're, am I allowed to say ass? But of course, if, um, if you, uh, if you don't commit any resources to doing what the focus groups recommend, then what's the point, you know? Totally. Yeah. So that, you know, I mean, I really think it's important that, you know, people hear young people, especially because people tend to think young people are like stupid or defective or whatever, you know? Totally. But um, in fact, they're, you know, they're innovative. Yeah. They have ideas, especially, you know, I mean, I, I got, you know, I got Twitter under my belt. I finally had to learn Instagram because my board kept complaining that nobody was doing Instagram. So Mm. I was forced to, and then I found (laughs) it useful for cat pictures on my own account (laughs) organization. Um, 
but then um but i can't i can't even i i can't even imagine tiktok it's like oh, beyond my <laughs> my capacity and i don't understand snapchat i'm just like why would you want to put rabbit ears on everybody anyway <laughs> so um yeah so definitely you know young people have you know they have the knowledge like they're the ones you know i mean i certainly if i'm stuck you know with my iphone i find a client and i say make it do this you know mm -hmm. so i think you know we have to respect the young people's skills and knowledge that we don't have and that they are the gateway to their communities wow mm -hmm. that's really powerful that the young people are the gateway to their communities um i know i you just you've done so much for the community for so many years and um something that you and i have in common is that we both are honorees for the gcn impact awards um yes. and now and, and, truthfully, and now they've come back <laughs> yeah so they were postponed there was a, supposed to be a, a red carpet gala in march and that was postponed and now we're we're doing them virtual on september 24th but it's truthfully like being an honoree next to you feels so wild like i like you've been you've been doing this for decades and i just like popped in a few years ago and like i just am so honored to be to be honored next to you and i just want to know like how does it feel to have a, like your life's work honored in this way it's just it's incredible um to me it feels very uncomfortable uh oh, okay i don't i'm not a big fan of being looked at um, like I'm fine speaking to a crowd safely behind a podium, mm -hmm. but this red carpet thing is very distressing to me. And I was kind of hoping that it would disappear, um, <laughs> once COVID hit. Um, so, you know, whatever, I'll deal with it, you know, sometimes, but yeah, it's not my, it's not my preferred thing at all. I mean, this is not my first, you know, round with the award thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, we got this um, award of the renewal award and it's a national award. Um, and I had to go to DC for that. And it was, you know, like 24 hours of like constant, you know, like press conference and a dinner and a this. And I was like, oh, you know, it was a lot. And you have to do it all dressed up, which is also not my preferred state of being. Now that especially I've gotten in the habit of being in my pajamas pretty much all the time. So I'm spoiled. Totally. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but I think, you know, there are some great people this year. I mean, like Jevon from uh, Princess Janae Place, mm -hmm. like they're doing some amazing work too. And so there's some good people. And, you know, I was glad to see that some of, you know, that it wasn't just the usual people, you know, that there were trans people and younger people and people doing different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. That was really good because some of these things, it's like a bunch of old white people. Yeah. Um, I just, it's, uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, Bobby, we can edit this part out. Oh, what was I going to say? There's um, also the whole thing of only getting 60 minutes to the 60 seconds. To oh, yeah. That I kind of object to. I'm like, that's, I mean, come on. You could do like 90 seconds. Yeah. Especially um, now that it's virtual. I mean. Yeah. Well, does that take some of the stress out of the anxiety of the red carpet since you'll just be walking by yourself, <laughs> not in front of people? Well, the thing is people are still going to see it. 
That's true. That's true. I wasn't sure if it was like the, the live aspect of it, or just, I guess it's just anyone seeing you at all is, is what's happening. Well, so we, um, I totally understand the not wanting to be in front of people, but I will say that you are a very, what like inspiring, motivating, lovely person to listen to. And as evidenced in this episode, and also um, I just remember when we did, um, me and Sarah Steele, we did that cabaret, the fundraiser last April, I think it was. I think, yeah, it was. And you spoke and had a room packed, which now is so anxiety provoking, but packed shoulder to shoulder. Everyone was in tears because you speak from the heart and you speak so um, directly about the work that needs to be done to uplift and to help LGBT youth experiencing homelessness. And so I'm really looking forward to those 60 seconds because I want to know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because, you know, I don't actually plan ahead, really. Oh, I, wow. I, I often have a point or two that I want to get to and I'll maybe jot a couple words down on an index card to remind myself now that I'm getting a little older. <laughs> but I, um, I kind of, and this is partly why the virtual thing sucks for me. Mm-hmm. is that I am used to feeling a room, yeah, like literally sure. feeling the vibes. I mean, that sounds so like flaky, but it's so vibes real. is the only word I can come up with for it. Um, the energy. The energy. There you go. Yeah. That's a little less uh, psychedelic, you know. Um, <laughs> vibes works too. <laughs> yeah. And so it's har- it is harder for me because um, I don't get the initial read of the room and I don't get an ongoing read. you know and Mm -hmm. so I mean I think you know as someone you know even in my you know my individual like counseling type work with clients I'm always reading vibes and so it's just something I'm very used to and it's like where are they (laughs) you know yeah for sure. so it's very strange but um yeah and you know I also think it also depends on what I've been thinking about in the in the you know couple days leading up to speaking yeah. somewhere. I mean, I know that one, I had been thinking a lot about uh, youth suicide, you know, queer youth suicide, because I'd been reading about it. And I'd been, you know, whatever, just that was what was rumbling around my head. So that's what I talked about, you know, and that's mm-hmm. how it goes, you know, like right now I'm thinking a lot about, um, about death, which is <laughs> unfortunate, but we had a client die a couple of weeks ago, somewhat unexpectedly, and we're having a, yeah, we're having a thing for him Monday, an outdoor <laughs> memorial because we can't, uh, you know. Yeah. Um. And, you know, and of course, this has been an ongoing thing for us. You know, we we seem to lose one or two young people a year. And I even said to my own doctor, you know, I I said something to him about it, and then I said wow, you know, it's pretty fucked up that it just sounded like, like, you know, activate protocol. Like, we shouldn't have to have a protocol for people in their 20s dying of preventable things that are just related to being homeless, for the most part, you know, or being queer or both, you know, and it's just, you know, so it's just been on my mind. So that's what I'm thinking about. And 
Like, how do you, you know, I mean, and partly, of course, this is a time when a lot of people are thinking about death because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, for us, it's still AIDS, you know. I mean, so much of the affluent gay community is all like, AIDS is over, blah, blah, blah. But at the intersection of mental illness and homelessness and maybe addiction and HIV, you still have people developing AIDS and you still have people dying. You know, I just have a client who got out of the hospital yesterday. And then I have one who's in a nursing home with AIDS. And, um, you know, to be 28 years old and be a trans woman and be in a nursing home with a bunch of old folks, that's really hard, you know? Yeah. You do such important work. And, we, you know, we were talking before the episode started of how you're kind of on call 24-7 and you have... Um, LGBT youth who've been kicked out of their homes from all over the country, you know, making their way to New York City as a place of accept, you know, hopefully hoping for acceptance and a place to land and they get here and call you, they call your cell phone and you help them. And it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's just, it's incredible. I just, I feel so lucky to have met you to be connected through James Bruffy um, who's a buddy of mine who used to babysit. I love that. So and random. It's so random. But just getting to work with you and to learn from you and to be in space and community with you is really special to me. Um, and I feel so just so inspired by what you do. And I just, I appreciate you very much. So I just wanted to, I feel like I gushed at you at that cabaret as well, but I just like, I think every time I see you, I'm like, I just need to gush at you more because. But you know, I think also though that the work you brought to the clients was very important to them, you know, because expression is a really important thing for folks who are tend to be silenced and also Mm -hmm. for people who are dealing with trauma. Yeah. Um, And so I think that was really, it's really important. And also the fact that, um, you know, it's a big confidence booster for them to be able to perform. So I think, you know, and we still have clients who are like, we want to do it again, blah, 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 you know, so. Yeah, yeah it's, um, I, yeah, I'm so happy that we were able to connect. So uh, what Kate's referencing is Craft Your Truth, which is um, this organization that Jeffrey Kidwell and I put together, and we bring in teaching artists and work with uh, the clients at New Alternatives on, cre- on them using their own stories or whatever they're feeling and create some kind of artistic performance piece. And then the first iteration, we actually did a fundraiser, um, which was really spectacular where they got to pay, they got to perform to a paying audience um, after a day long workshop, which was just, it was one of the best days of my life. I don't know. It just was so wow. I still think about it. And then, yeah, it was really intense. Yeah. And, um, and then later that year we did another like smaller iteration with the ally coalition and we performed for each other. And I, the feedback that I got from clients was like, we didn't even think anyone cared about our stories. And it just broke my heart that anyone thinks that. And the fact that, because it's like the opposite of that. It's like, all I, all I care about is your story and like making you feel like making you know that your story matters. Um, and so we are still trying to figure out how to do this virtually. And we are definitely thinking about, and because we have one planned for June 1st. And we had to cancel it. So we are, we will keep bringing it back because it is, it's a really spectacular, um, just 
day or chunk of time to spend with you all and to learn from each other and to use art as a way of expression and, act, and activism. Um, so I, I don't want to do this, but I have to move us into our last section. Sure. Um, but uh, so it's just like a, a very lighthearted rapid fire question and answer. So just answer what the first thing that comes to your mind and there's no okay. right or wrong answers except all one, right. but it's all just for fun. Um, pencil or pen? Pen. Acting or singing? Oof. Singing. Dogs or cats? Well, cats. <laughs> yeah. uh, beach or mountains? Beach. Uh, meat or veggies? Veggies. Bagels or donuts? Oh, what a choice. Bagels, I guess. That's the right answer. <laughs> uh, train or plane? Train. Sweet or salty? Salty. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Night or day? Night. And favorite kitchen item or utensil? Favorite kitchen item. Hmm. Yes, I like my potato peeler. Ooh. That's a that's a unique one. I don't think anyone's ever said that. But it, but it's it a really nice one that like is just like whoosh, whoosh, you know, it's yeah. not like the ninety nine cent store ones that get loose and then you have to like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you don't know that you have a bad one until you get a good one and you're like, Oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. Yeah, it's so much <laughs> easier. Claw is stuck, baby. <laughs> no, um, it's stuck. There you go. Um I almost took your button. Uh, <laughs> uh, Kate, thank you so much for spending some time with us today it was such a treat such an honor yeah no it was always interesting to uh to think back on uh on some of that some of the stuff that the journey here you know what I mean yeah thank you for coming and who out. knows what's ahead right yeah that's true that is very true I really thought we were going to wind up sitting down in front of those federal agents. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. You know, we, as soon as they hit Portland, we started organizing. Wow. It was like, we're all right. So we're going to just sit down because they can't say you're violent. If you're just sitting there, mm -hmm. and you can see everything that's going on. Yeah. So I really yeah. thought we were going to be sitting there, but I was pretty scared, but I was, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So, yeah. I mean, I saw some of those videos of the, of the, um, on like 22nd street and second Avenue. And it's like, that's just oh, like yeah. right here of like someone getting thrown a trans, a young trans woman yeah. getting thrown into a van. It's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy right now. You know, we have, um, I live in Bay Ridge, one of the most conservative parts of the city. And, um, we have this, we we're already struggling with these neo-Nazi people, the Patriot front putting up stickers and propaganda all over the neighborhood and we're always taking them down and it's battle. Mm. And they've started, like they found one of our people's home and they stickered our home, including the windows. Ugh. So anyway, we've been dealing with them, but then they united up with the blue lives matter people and they started having these horrible rallies. And so we were counter protesting. And the thing is that the police were just letting them do whatever, like, some of those guys were punching our women in the face and the police what? were doing nothing. And then the police chased one of our, a guy on our side, broke his arm in two places. He was in the hospital for like at least a week. Oh my gosh. 
yeah and they they let them drive a car into our rally and like i mean it's really it's been really bad out here wow that i don't i did not was that in the news i like i didn't see that at all there was some news coverage there was a lot of twitter coverage oh, okay. a lot of reading about like bay ridge the battle of bay ridge, you know oh wow but it was it was insane it was one of the more crazy things i've Certainly not something you really expect to experience in New York City. Totally. One one of the guys on their side was telling, yelling at women, you should be raped, you should be raped. Jeez. And he turned out when we, you know, we got a photo and we managed to ID him and he was a former cop. Wow. Yeah. Oh, well, that is, that's really intense. I'm sorry. That yeah. Happened. Sorry to do with that in your own home neighborhood, but I mean, geez. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a time when, you know, things that I feel like we all thought were kind of more remote are coming right in your face. Like, you know, we all knew about the history of white supremacy, but I think a lot of people thought it was kind of like not here or not now or whatever. And now that's like been ripped away and now you can see it all around. Yeah. Lots of work All to right. do. Happy to be yeah. happy to be in this. Not happy to be in this work with you, but if one has to be in this work, to be in it with you is an honor. I guess is a better. Well, way to thank put you. That. Yes, of course. And we will see you soon. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. Have a good day. Thanks, Kate. You too. Thank you for coming out. Hey, it's Dubs Weinblatt, your host of Thank You for Coming Out. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps.